We are in Luke chapter 12, and we will start in verse 35. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. They dressed and ready for action, and seek the last way, and he had men who were waiting for him after the come home from the wedding. So that's when they may open the door to him and watch him come to mom. Blessed are those servants, and he must have had the way to come. He may agree with you, he will dress himself for service, and have them apply at the table, and he will come and serve him. If he comes in the second watch, or in the third, and finds him away, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour he was coming, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household, to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions, but if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given... Of him will much be much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. This is God's word for God's people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks this morning for yet another opportunity to experience and live in your grace. We pray that your word permeates not only the walls of this church, but the very hardness and cracks of our heart. We pray that we would believe and confess and understand that the only way we can change is the miracle working of the Spirit of God working through the people of God. We pray, Lord, that You would help us this morning be prepared and excited about the glorious day whenever it comes that You will return. And that it will be a day when You take the world that You own rightfully and claim it once and for all. We pray too, Lord, for those that have taken belong these last two weeks, we thank you for them. We pray that that's a reminder not only for those in the class, but for all of our church body, that we would continue to strive after you, care for one another, and hold to our church covenant. We pray, Lord, as, as this church grows, our sin would not. We pray, Lord, that you would be pleased by what happens on this Sunday morning. And that we would never think that what it means to be a member of your body or a member of a church is merely a attending a gathering. Help us to know you better, love you more, and spread your kingdom farther. We exalt you this morning and we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The 12th chapter of the Gospel of Luke marks the halfway point of his letter. Now, if my math serves right, it, I think it'll be 2026 before we get out of here. The reason I bring that up is that I would say, though I'm not predicting anything, that the chances are pretty likely that Jesus will return before we get to the end of the Gospel of Luke at the rate that we are, that we are 
are going. We find ourselves in a section of Scripture here where Jesus is taking great pains to disciple His followers. He's teaching. And He has been teaching for some time. Going all the way back really to the middle of chapter 9. We know last week that Aaron was talking to us through the teaching of Jesus in the beginning of chapter 12 about anxiety. Where Jesus teaches His disciples that we are not to be anxious about anything. Specifically, having anxiety related to money. He closes in verse um, 34 with these phrase, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What's Jesus doing? He's trying to create, through His words, the reality of the dividing line of the human creation. There will be goats and there will be sheep. There will be those who live for the world that is perishing and those who wait for a kingdom that is to come. There are those who will believe in Him and those who are rejecting Him. He is dividing the lines of humanity. He actually makes it most explicit here. If you'll just quickly turn down to verse 49. Next week, Richard will discuss this and teach, lead us through this passage here. But look at 49. These are Jesus' words. Chapter 12, 49. I came to cast fire in earth and that I would be already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with. How great is my distress. Do you think that I've come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, rather division. He is a God of peace, but He is coming to make known that He does not have peace with the state of the world. He encourages the disciples and you and I, we don't have to be worried about the decay of this world because our treasure's not here. It won't be subject to the decay of this world, so we should not be worried or anxious about it. Now that principle continues into today's passage. But He does it with a little slight bent. And I think it's one of the most profound illustrations of what it means to live today in light of eternity. That's really what Jesus is trying to teach His disciples and you and I. To live today in light of eternity. This passage is special and helpful for us because this principle surrounds one of the core doctrines of the Christian experience. Namely, He's coming back. To be a Christian, you must believe that Jesus is going to return. And when you look at the state of the world, it can be rather helpful to remember that. I don't have to have anxiety when I remember that He's coming to fix it all. But when I have no future hope, and I look at the state of the world, my heart rate begins to naturally rise. To be a Christian means that we must believe that Jesus is coming. He's coming suddenly, He's coming gloriously, and He's coming with overwhelming power. A.W. Pink, I just like this quote so much, I don't, it doesn't fit, I'm just going to tell it to you because I liked it a lot. That's, that's where we're at. He says this, the first time Christ came to slay sin in men, the second time He will come to slay men in sin. Jesus knows that He's coming back in this passage way before He even dies. And He's preparing His disciples to consider the eternal reality and to hope in it. Because He knows that though the disciples are standing right in front of Him, they see God face to face. Sin blinds us and sin deafens us 
and sin distracts us to such a degree that we find Peter, when a teenage girl says, I think you were with Jesus, he forgets the eternal hope and he begins to mess around in worldly anxiety. He lives like he was never going to come back. And the same is true for us, isn't it? We have this Bible that sits in our lap that declares a truth. We have a spirit that rests in our soul. We have a testimony to the world that God is real and He has come and that Jesus rose from the grave and He's trustworthy and He's coming back. But sin blinds us, sin deafens us, and distracts us. And yet, though we are Christians, we tend to live in such a way that we say He's never coming back at all. That's the problem that we deal with today. And Jesus in His loving mercy predicts this and gives us this passage as a remedy to that thinking. He provides parables. Now parables are not illustrations of a greater sermon. Jesus' parables are His sermon. And the point of the parable is this. The sermon could technically be over now. The point of the parable is this. We must be ready now. He says to the Christian, to the follower, be prepared for God or for his returns, for his return. Jesus the master is coming back and he asks the question, are you ready? Let me just here's a thought experiment. What if the roof cracked open during the middle of this sermon and Jesus returned? How would you feel? Not in your mind. Not exteriorly. I'm asking, how would you feel in your heart? For some of us, we might say, the Christian might say, I would be saddened. Because i got to be honest with you, man, i got a whole bunch of people that have Easton for their last name that don't believe in this God. And when He returns, time has run out. And there's a weight to that. Some might say, no, 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 we should be happy. And I would say to you, your feelings, your mind, and your emotions should not be governed by your experience, but by the Word of God. What does the Bible tell us about how we should respond when He comes? Paul, in his last words in 2 Timothy, says that he would be justified, and not only him, but those who love His returning. We are to be excited, exhilarated, overjoyed that Jesus is coming. The Christian says, come Lord quickly. Why? Because it does bring an end to time, man. I understand that. But you know what else it brings an end to? All suffering. Sin no more gets to ravage the people we love. That will come to an end. And so we love His appearing. Now this section tells us that we should be ready. But I want to offer you, there's one general principle, but here's four ways that I think it can be helpful for us to apply it in our life. We'll break the passage into four sections. Verses 35-37, we're going to talk about being ready now. Verses 38-41, through we're going to be talking about um, the Christian should be waiting well. Verses 41-44, through the Christian should be faithfully serving. And 45-48, through the Christian should beware of his or her heart. There's a, underlining this text here, there's an element of progression along the way. What's the first thing a waiting Christian or a person needs to do to become a Christian? They have to believe. They need to be reborn. 
And once reborn, I need to, I'm ready now. I'm ready to have Jesus as my King. I want Him to come back. But I'm in waiting. The Christian can't just convert and then not move. We are to grow up. We are to progress. As we are given time, we are to wait well by sanctifying ourselves through the work of the Lord. And as we grow in Christ, what naturally happens as you get older? You get more responsibility. The same thing as a Christian. As you grow in Christ, more responsibility is given to you. Some much more, some a little bit more. But we, while we are here, waiting well and being ready now, ought to be faithful servants to what we've been given. And what happens when we get over something? When we get to rule in some way? We just begin to want it to worship us, don't we? Our wicked hearts want to receive condemnation or uh, uh, accommodation, want to receive uh, respect from other people. What we really want is worship from the things that we are over. And so while we're waiting, we need to be cautious and beware of our heart. That's where we're going today. Let's jump into the section here. Uh, section one, be ready now. This is verses 35 through 37. He begins here by telling his disciples to be ready. And he uses some pictures to help illustrate it. Stay dressed for action. You might have heard the term, biblical term, to gird up your loins. That means make ready your dress. Get your robe off of the ground. Tuck it into your belt because we might have to run at any moment. The second thing is to keep your lamp lit. That picture is that at night, if someone was to coming, if you were going to be prepared for that, you would need your lamp lit in the middle of the night so the person far off in a darkened world could come, could see where you are. That we would keep our lamp lit I'm, means I'm even ready in the middle of the night. And in verse 36, we see these important words here. You might have missed them. And be like to the Christian, to the disciple. He's telling them, this is what I want you to be like. There's action here. Here's instruction coming. Those who are waiting for their master to come. He's gone away, this master in the parable here, to a wedding feast. Weddings back in that day didn't last a couple hours, they lasted a couple weeks. I am doing a lot of premarital right now, and I'm telling a lot of the people that I'm doing it that I want to buy a big red hat that says, make weddings great again. <laughs> we have totally lost what a wedding is and what a wedding could be, and I think it would be a good start to just say, let's do this for a week. Wouldn't that be fun? Celebrate the miracle of God. In the bringing of two people together. So the master leaves and he goes to this faraway land and he's going to an, uh, an ancient wedding that would last days. No cell phones at the time. No time to write a letter. The servants don't know when he would return. And he says this, they fi he finds them awake, indicating that it's a time for sleep. He comes late. When he comes, truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and recline at the table. This is a shocking response. What did the servants do? They did their job. In my family, we didn't have allowance. My dad called it family cooperation. You know? <laughs> you do not get dollars for doing what you are here to do. <laughs> I made you to mow the lawn is kind of what I took away from that. The servants do nothing exceptional. They are just faithful to their calling. And, the, and this master, when he returns, 
treats them in a way that a master wouldn't normally treat a servant. It says here that the master essentially becomes the servant. He reclines with them and he will serve them. It's an amazing illustration. The picture here that we need to understand is that the abundant grace of the Master is a picture of the abundance grace of Jesus. He sent, masters this Jesus character to those who are faithful when He returns. He responds accordingly in this great way. Here's a great illustration for you. Uh, many years ago, I might have been 12 or 13, I was um, called by a neighbor who, who babysat some kids down the street. We knew the, the same kids. I'm not much of a babysitter at this time. I'm more of a, as you might have guessed, lawnmower. <laughs> that was my, my industry. And there, there was a mix-up, and he said, man, can you babysit these kids for me? These three little boys, I knew them well. It was no problem, except for the fact that I'd never babysitted another soul in my life. So I call my mother and I say, Mom, I don't, I'm going to do this babysitting job. I want this money, but I don't know how to do it. And my mom gives me some tips. She says to them, if you want to be a good babysitter, what you need to know, babysitters, this is helpful for you. Don't just babysit the kids and put them to bed. Take care of the home in a way that when the, when the mother and father get back, the Dr. Valenzuela was his name, when he gets back, there's no dishes to care for or laundry to work through. They can be tired from their day and be able to go right to bed because the house is taken care of. I said, Roger, we take care of the kids. We have pizza. We put them to sleep. I do some dishes. I organize the magazines and they're not home. So I clean the sink and the counter and then I'm lifting up the couch and I'm cleaning underneath it. <laughs> I want to be found faithful when they walk in the door. I had this picture of me doing the job well when they walked in. Well, come to find out that they had had a flat tire and they were like three hours late. And so I cleaned their whole house. I was, I was cleaning the air ducts. You know, I was, I was doing everything. But I didn't know when they were returning home. My ambition, though, wasn't to do the job. It was to be faithful to the Master. You have to ask yourself the question. Here's an application for you. Why do the servants treat the master this way? This is humbling for us. Because they know his character. The masters know the, or sorry, the servants know the master. And so they are excited about his return. Maybe you could apply it this way. Your relationship in the hope of a future coming is dependent upon your understanding of Christ's cross. I'm excited that he's coming back because I know what he's done for me. I have a testimony of a master and he's not mean and he's not violent. He's very patient and he's loving kind. That's a testimony for, for me. So how do we apply it? To be ready now, you need to believe. You need to believe that Jesus is exactly what he said he is and did what he said, exactly what he said he did. The Christian says, Lord, come with, with quickly. Sorry, my tongue is broken. He says, what he did on the cross, I'm excited about because I know what he's going to do next. The Christian says, for I'm sure that he saved a sinner like me. I can't wait to see him as a son. But to the non-believer, they don't respond the same way, do they? They have nothing to be ready for because they don't think anything has happened. To the non-believer who's maybe questioning the validity of Jesus, I would say to you, 
How do you know that your time isn't already running out? When you don't, you're not sure that He is who He said He is, you're going to find out eventually. And if you don't think you need a Lord and you don't want a Master, you may get your wish in eternity. And time is running out. As it's been said, we are closer today to Christ's return than we ever have been in history. If you don't believe, brothers and sisters, if you've been fledgling on the line considering Jesus coming to church because you like the coffee and the community, I beg you, hear me. Maybe today your soul will be required of you. Come now and anticipate His return. He's a gracious God. Maybe some of you, as we transition, I've, I've considered this a lot. I'm wondering if there's maybe some of you in the, in the room today that believe in Christ and, and His cross and believe in salvation, but you're fearful of His return. It's kind of that like anticipation mixed with anxiety. If you're there, this point may be helpful for you. Number two, we're going to wait well. If He comes, verses 38, if He comes in the second or the third watch, and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. The second and the third watch, again, is a reference to the night. This, these servants stay awake. He says that He would bless them. But know this, that if the master of the house... Now, He changes the illustration a little bit. It's a parable with an illustration in it. You are the master of the house. Maybe it would be helpful to design it this way. You own a home. And someone comes to you and says, hey, someone's going to rob your house today. If you are a good homeowner, what will you do? I don't know when he's coming, but I'm staying awake all night till he does. I'm going to be faithful to the stuff that I own and that I care about to my responsibility. He says this, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Verse 40 is the point of the parable. Be ready for the Son of Man. That's translated, be ready there, is literally the term continually prepared for action. Who's here is like had a diet, and then as soon as you hit your goal weight, that that whole thing just stopped. <laughs> totally guilty. It's one thing to commit to receive a goal. It's a one or to achieve a goal. It's another thing to maintain that goal. We are not only to be ready now, but we are to be continually waiting well. What does it mean to be waiting well? You have an appointment with God and you don't know when it is. You're either going to come to Him or He's either going to come to you. Alistair Begg, regardless of what you might think of him currently, he says this, and I think it's helpful. Being ready for Christ's return means simply this, that upon seeing Him, we would have neither fear nor shame. Christian, think about it like this. How have you been waiting for Christ's return this week? How have you been waiting this month? You may have said the prayer to Jesus years ago and been a faithful Christian attender, but how are we maintaining our service as servants into the third and the fourth watches of the night? You guys know Lindsay, my wife. Lindsay, Lindsay's the most clean. Like, like there's the OR and then there's Lindsay's house, you know? And she does this wonderful thing where she maintains the cleanliness of the house. She, I don't know, many of you guys have heard this. She like, have you ever heard of somebody tucking their kitchen in? You know, we tuck the kids in and then we can't go to bed until the kitchen is totally clean and prepared so that the next morning we, we tuck the kitchen in. 
When Lindsay goes on a trip, that goes out the window. Okay? It is so terrible. I text Lindsay constantly when you're coming home. What time? Where's your flight? And she's like, why are you so worried about it? I was like, because I need to know my three-hour deadline. I have let you would leave me if you saw what's happening here. (laughs) I let the house go. Suppose, if you will, though, if Lindsay tried to surprise me and I hear the knock on the door. I'm I'm, we're in marriage. We're in covenant together. We love each other. That's settled. But she bursts through the door at an hour I do not expect. And though we are in relationship together, I haven't been living in relationship at all. Would we consider that? Jesus, in, this, in Revelation chapter 22, the Scripture says that the Lord is coming quickly. He's been coming quickly for 2,000 years. And I think that indicates to our issue where we get kind of led astray. We can have problems with our, relative, uh, our relationship to time. We don't see time the way God sees time. And so if we are to wait well, I think there's just three quick. This is, there's one application. I want you to wait well, which means continually be in your service to Him. Here's three things that might get in the way. Number one, laziness. We have more than enough time. One said, if anyone had have victory in the Christian life, they must first have victory over their sheets. The snooze button, the bed cover, the I'll do it later, it is not, we don't want to rest in Christ, but it can be a hindrance from what God is asking us to do in service to Him. Another one said, the devil's favorite word is tomorrow. My hope is that the um, hope of Christ's return and the, and, the, and the King coming would spur you on to action today. Maybe number two, we don't have enough time because we're busy. Lazy, we have all the time we need and more. Busy, we never have enough time. I want to prioritize Christian living or what I believe the Lord's wanting me to do with my life, but I'm so busy with all of the living that needs to be done that I can't even fit fit it into the margins. Some of you might say that the playbook of life, or pardon me, that um, that the yeah, that was like a bad misspelling. It's a bad word on my, my tablet. I'm not going to say it out loud. Sorry. <laughs> my hope is that you don't try to fit Christ in. My hope is that the impending return of Christ would, would totally reverse your calendar and that the faith by which you live by would proceed to such a degree into your heart that it would make it into your calendar. That my life in Christ actually is in my schedule too. And the third one, worldliness. I have more than enough time, I don't have enough time, or I'm convinced by something other than the Bible how to spend my time. The playbook for life is never found anywhere else but the Bible that sits in your lap. And I'm, I want you to be weary, especially young people, that there are YouTube talking heads and self-help books that are t- totally reasonable and in some ways helpful. But if I devote my time, my readiness, my stewardship to those things, when Christ returns, you can't turn to Him and say, well, I'm doing this because Jordan Peterson told me it was a good idea. It's interesting while we're in the here and now, but we have lost a perspective of eternity. And it's helpful for us to consider that. 
Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. If He's Lord, He gets to be Lord today. So Christ is telling His disciples that we have to do this continually. And Peter asks this question. It's a wonderful question in verse 41. Wait, question Jesus. Is this for everyone? Or is this just... For us, and it's a it's a helpful question, and I think the answer is pretty easy to see based off how Jesus answers. Verse forty one, or pardon me, forty two. You see this, and the Lord said, "Who then is the faithful and wise manager?" In the first parable, we have servants. In the second parable, we have managers. The first parable is for all, anybody. You have to deal with Christ's return. The second parable has to do with what Peter's asking. What about those who are in service to you? And of course, we know from Scripture that the Lord loves those who want to seek after ambitious qualities like the eldership or pastorate or leading a Bible study or children's class. That's all good. These are things we should seek after. But you must also know, just like the manager in the parable, that those leaders will be judged more severely. And we see that now. Verse 42, And the Lord said, Who then is faithful to the wise manager, whom the manager will set over his household? This is a person who's a servant of the manager, but he's also over all the other servants. And his job is to make sure everybody gets the food every day. He's got authority. And he says, Give them the portion at the proper time. Verse 43, Blessed is that servant who the master will find doing so when he comes. We see a similar pattern here. Watch this. 44. Truly I say to you, He will set Him over all His possessions. This is radical love. This is the term that you guys might use like the scandalous grace. This is more than they deserve for doing their job. And again, it shows the character of the Master. We see that. He's incredibly generous, just like in verse 37. (laughs) The problem is, we don't all make this decision, do we? You don't have to follow the the Master. You can make another decision in your heart. Verse 44. Truly I say... Or verse 45. But if the servant says to him, my master is delayed in coming, says to himself, and he begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and to drink and to get drunk. Third point here is to be faithfully serving. And we see the reward for faithful service. We have somebody who's put in a place of stewardship and he does well and he's rewarded abundantly. But we do not have to make that choice, leader. We do not have to make that decision. We can say to ourselves, which is a dangerous thing. This happens in a variety of ways, but I just want to offer an illustration. We want to be be faithful over what we're stewarding. That can be difficult in in many ways. I want to offer just some quick ideas for you to consider. Husbands, If Christ returned today, would He call you a faithful steward by the presentation of your bride? 
Moms, here's one for you. I think sometimes, as I've be- like had a front row seat to watching a mom, sometimes things that you've been called to steward don't seem that glamorous. Don't ever see like anybody sees it. For those of you that have raised kids and are raising kids, sometimes you feel like that your whole life is dishes and diapers and dirty clothes, and how is any of this of eternal value? Your faithful is, is seen by the Master, and if He were to return in the middle of your dishes duty or your nightly cleanup, you would have proven yourself faithful to the Master in the endeavors that He's put over you. It's Jamie Finn, this author, deals a lot with adoption. She writes this in a text and a book, and I think it's really helpful. She says this, I'm convinced that every word I speak, every dish I scrub, every diaper I change, every spill I clean that's done out of love for my Savior is divinely transformed from a mother's chore to a daughter's worship. We're not talking about leading just when we're talking about preaching. Now that's true. We need to, we, that's, we're going to be judged more severely for that. But sometimes the little stewardship that we have, the, the, what doesn't seem like a big deal, leads us to think because it's small, I don't need to be faithful to it or that it doesn't matter for eternity. That is categorically untrue. And Christ will prove when He returns to those that we have maybe never seen on a camera or had a microphone in their face that they have been faithful servants. Last one, to some of the elderly. I've had the opportunity to do many funerals and hold many hands as dying breaths were taking shape. And there's a common tenor as our bodies begin to shut down where you think, I got air in my lungs, but that's kind of it. I don't have the ability, the energy to do anything more than this. How do I be a faithful servant when my machine, my body, is so broken down? I want to finish well. If Christ were to come today, I would be ashamed because I don't feel like I can do what I used to do. And I would want to just say to you that we're not asking you to be faithful with what you've had or what you will have. I want you to be faithful with where you are. Um, a famous uh, pastor and, and songwriter named Brian Sauvet, a musician, writes a song about God's faithfulness to him and his reply. And he writes this in one of his songs, and this may be for you. He says this, and when I'm dying in my bed, O God Almighty, let me hear them, a chorus of all my people singing songs. And with my ragged breath, I'll sing along. We're not trying to do a bunch of stuff. This is not a covenant of works here. This is about being faithfully stewarding what we've been given over to do. And if all we have left is to lay in our hospital bread and... and pray silently, um, then from your pastor to you, that matters in heaven. Last one. We're almost done. 45. If you make the other choice. He says, I say to myself, if you go up here in um, Luke 12, 19, we have another parable of a very similar time when it's about the, uh, the rich landowner. He says that I've got a bunch of grain and so what I'll do is I'll tear down my barns and I'll, I'll build new ones and I'll put all the grain in it. And you'll notice in the text there that the man says, and, I, and, it's, and he'll say to his own soul. Here, we see this manager saying to himself, literally the translation is, and he says to his own heart. 
You thought this was a parable about what you do. It's always been a parable about the condition of your heart. And he says to his own heart, this is what I will do because, verse 45, my master is delayed in coming. He doesn't trust him. If you despise the master, then what you are saying is that you despise his cross. You despise his word. The manager is responding with actions that have always been buried in his heart. And there's somebody in the audience when Jesus is teaching who's actually doing that very thing, isn't he? There Jesus is in front of his disciples, and Judas is saying in his heart, I want none of this. He looks the part, he says the words. He's faithful in the terms of I'll be there, I'll show up. But in his heart, he despises the Lord. He is the manager that despises the Master. And we know how that eventually bubbles up into his actions. But when the Master returns, verse 46, something brutal happens. It says that he will cut up this unfaithful servant, this unfaithful manager, and, and throw him or put him with the unfaithful believers. Here's a picture for you. Parables, this has been said by Matt Whitney, parables are always a way for us to understand realities that are much bigger and deeper than the parables described. So, when the, when the master gives the property to the good manager, I want you to know that in reality, it's way greater than that. And when the master cuts up the unfaithful servant and throws him with the unbelievers, I want you to know it's way worse than that. It's a picture that maybe gets us close to understanding, but it does not describe what will happen when you are separated from a loving Master in eternal judgment. The question I want you to consider though is what's the most offensive thing the servant does? See, the, the people that he hits, their bruises will heal. I can grow more grapes and make more wine and we can grow more crops. The most offensive thing that the master does, or that the, sorry, the manager does, is while the master's away, he tries to become the master himself. You see it? Look in the text. He's trying to be God. And don't we do the same thing? We want to be the gods of our little lives. I am convinced that most of our motivation in our sinful life is that we desire worship. We do. We want girls to think we're cute or guys to think we're cute. We want a lot of money so people respect us. We want the camera in front of us so people will listen to us. We want to be famous not because we want to be famous. We want to be famous because we want to be worshipped or whatever it is. And this is true. Genesis chapter 3. Eve's staring at a tree and what does the serpent say to her? If you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Where does all the worship in the world supposed to go? It goes to Him. And so when I become a little God of my own life, what I'm doing is stealing worship that belongs to the Lord. And the Bible is a violent history, not only of idolaters facing punishment, but of idols themselves being destroyed. And here I am, 17 years old, 18 years old, the Lord of my little life, wanting worship and stealing it from the Lord. And I interact with the cross and what has to happen to me what has to happen to you? Luke chapter 9. 
I realized that this false idol needs to die. Luke 9.23, Jesus says, unless you take up your cross daily, die to yourself, you cannot follow Me. In other words, I need to be careful, point number four, with my heart. Because my heart wants worship. And while I'm waiting for the Lord's return, I need to be waiting in a watchful way that says anything that is of worship, I want to give it to you. Because I don't want to be found as you crack open the sky receiving worship that belongs to you. Oh, what a dreadful thing that will be. I hope we can see that there. Okay, we're going to conclude now. Verse 47 and 48, what do we do with it? It'd actually be helpful if we just read it. And the servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act accordingly to his will, will receive a severe beating. But those who did not know and did what, <clears throat> sorry, and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand all the more. Here's a final warning at the end of the parable. What is Jesus saying to the disciples and to you and me? He's been saying, He says, man, you've been put on notice. You've been given a lot. This is for you to understand, especially those of you in this room. You can't unhear this sermon. You've been given salvation. The Spirit of God. The Bible in your lap. A loving church. This sermon. This day. The air in your lungs. You've been given so much. And so something will be required of you. First, that we would believe that Jesus who He is. said He is. That we would wait well, that we would be good stewards, and that we would watch our heart. So let's do it, church. Let's live today like He's coming tonight. Let's be ready now. Let's spend today waiting well. Let's faithfully serve over what we've been given. And let's beware of our hearts because there will come a time when His coming will have came and there will be no more time. Our readiness that day will turn into rest. Our waiting will give way to the wiping of every tear. And our faithful service will result in an eternal reward. And our hearts, church, our hearts will only want to worship Him. Come, Lord. Come quickly. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word and for Your time today. We pray, God, that You would help us to receive this, not just in our minds, but in the very depths of our heart. And that as we go from this place, maybe days or years from now, it won't be my words that ring true, but Your words that change our lives. In Jesus' precious name, we pray. Amen.